The scripture today is John 11:17 through 26. Now when Jesus came, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Vicki. Good morning. Welcome to uh, Redeemer City. My name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, this is some great Advent weather um, because the uh, the dreariness and the darkness and all of that uh, get you longing for a sunny day, hopefully tomorrow or the next day. Uh, and that's really what the season of Advent is about. It's about creating a longing in us for not just a remembrance and celebration of the first coming of Jesus, uh, but to get us longing for and awaiting and expecting and living expectantly for the second coming of Jesus. Uh, we're in week four of a series on the I Am Statements, and so I would uh, direct your attention to uh, the worship folder. You can find uh, on one side there the scripture Vicki just read, and then on the other side is, is the outline. And what we've been doing is taking a look at various statements of Jesus that he makes that really encompass and let us in on his self-understanding of what he came to do, his own mission, his own purpose. Uh, we've looked at, I'm the bread of life. We've looked at, I'm the light of the world. We've looked at, I'm the good shepherd. And today we come to, I'm the resurrection. Uh, kind of strange to be focusing on the end of Jesus's ministry in life, on what happened at Easter as we're sitting on Christmas or the edge of Christmas. Uh, but I think that's just the point. I think that's the direction, as I said a minute ago, that the season would take us. We've talked some, at least, throughout the series on where our location as the church is. Our location is this in-between time. Uh, it's in the, the Advent introduction in your worship folder uh, that's been there since we started. And what it means is we live after Jesus' first coming, and yet before his second coming, and there's a tension there. Uh, without Christmas, of course, there's no resurrection, but we can't just have Christmas. We can't settle in that Christmas is enough. We need what comes after. Uh, we need those 33 years or so, and then we need that last week of Jesus' life, and then we need Easter morning uh, in order to really make it. So this morning, speaking of location, we're going to look at the statement of Jesus largely through the lens of location, and I would ask you, and just get you to think, get your uh, kind of introspective juices flowing here, what, what are you in, or where, as we'll see, who, or who, I guess those would be the three, what are you in, or where are you, or who are you in, who are you living 
in. Uh, and I hope that that makes more sense as we go along here. So look at the outline uh, printed for you in the, the worship folder. It's the same format we've been using. Uh, and really what we're doing is looking at how have we been made or how does the Bible address uh, what Jesus does in terms of um, a, a creation design, how things were set up to work or what's gone wrong. Secondly, how do we participate in sinfully uh, grasping at what only God can give us? And then thirdly, how is Jesus who and what we really need? And this morning seeing that in the fact that he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then lastly, what will it be like when he comes again? And what are some bits and pieces that we get to experience of that even now? Um, admittedly, I'm far more excited about the second half of the sermon than the first half. Um, because that, of course, is, is the good part, but particularly that, that, uh, that fourth piece. And hope to provide you some helpful tools or at least applications of what is the difference that this makes uh, as you go out into uh, this, <laughs> this lovely weather today. Incidentally, thank you for being here. I, that may sound, uh, what's the word? Um, paternalistic or something like that. Oh, you're such good people for coming. Uh, and that's not what I mean. Uh, but there are a lot of other things that you could be doing, uh, particularly when you wake up and you see the uh, weather like this. You could just stay home. Uh, or you could go find something else to do. Uh, and so we really do appreciate you making this uh, a priority uh, for your day. Okay? So let's begin uh, with this First, uh, first idea here, death and resurrection. How does the Bible's presentation of the problems of sin and death teach us about how we were made? Well, every year during Advent and in the weeks leading up to Christmas, we read a lot from the book of Isaiah. If you're new to the Bible or new to Christianity, some of these passages you may even uh, have heard at some point in your life. They're, they're pretty famous. If you've ever heard Handel's Messiah uh, or... Uh, even seeing things uh, printed on uh, boards and whatnot uh, at this time of year. Famous passages like, Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Uh, or, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. These kinds of passages, at least in part, are designed to, or were designed, to create a longing in the people for the coming of the Messiah. The anointed of God who will set the world right, who will usher in a new creation where, as we read in Isaiah 11, the wolf will lie down with the lamb. Or in Isaiah 25, he will swallow up on this mountain that is Mount Zion, the mountain of God, the covering that is cast over all peoples. What is that? The veil that's spread over all the nations. Well, what is that? Well, he then says he will swallow up death forever. This is, this is way before Jesus. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. That sounds a little like the assurance of pardon, doesn't it? Which is from the end of the Bible. Isaiah describes the desert springing to life with water. That sounds like resurrection. Where there's no water, suddenly there's pools and springs. He describes every valley being lifted up and the crooked places made straight. We find the anointed, the Lord's servant, ultimately will be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. So not only will the physical creation be made right and new and whole, but humanity will be made right and new 
and whole. That's the vision. And the big picture is this. The world, which includes us, by the way, is in need of renewal. It's in need of resurrection. And the closer you get to the coming of Jesus in the Bible, the more specific the prophets get in their description of a new world. But, of course, there's a major problem. What is it? Well, the world ain't like that. The people looked around, kind of like you and I look around. We see, oh, things aren't like that. All of creation is longing for life, for a new world. It's groaning. We sang that last week with that song, Is He Worthy? Is all creation groaning? It is. Is all creation longing for something new? It is, right? The shadow of sin and brokenness, the pale of death, seems to loom large. It's why when you wake up on days like this or you have a couple of days in a row like this, you start to go, ugh, right? Because it's not inspiring. It's not encouraging. It's kind of not uplifting. It's down-pushing. I don't know what the opposite of uplifting is. Uh, trying to be wordsmithy there. That's what happens when I do that. Epic fail, right? But it's, it's why uh, places like Seattle and other parts of the world who have this type of weather 360 days a year have high rates of suicide and depression. Because it's a physical, it's a real tangible experiential representation that the pale of death is over us. And yet the book of Isaiah ends with a reference to the Lord saying he will make a new heavens and earth. Did you know that? Isaiah 66, really, into, really beginning with 65, but on into chapter 66, the last chapter. See, the Bible is a story. It's a story primarily about Jesus. He's the point of the whole thing. Every small story in it whispers his name. And uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible, which we reference uh, quite a bit around here, does a great job of doing that. Uh, and, and pointing us to that reality. But the Bible is also about humanity. It's about humanity's purpose and main problem. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, including humanity. But on page three, we find humanity choosing to believe the lie of the serpent, the terrible lie that sunk in like poison, as the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it, rather than believe God's heart for them. The man and the woman wanted life They wanted security and peace and freedom. They wanted to belong. They wanted to have fellowship. They wanted all the same things that you and I want. In essence, life. And they had it in God. The trouble is, and if you're new to the Bible or new to Christianity, this this might be new to you. I hope it's helpful to you. Uh, They chose something else. They wanted life but they went for the wrong source. They thought life was to be found in knowing. There's that preposition uh, that I'm going to uh, really park on a lot today. They, f- they, they wanted to be in the know. That's what the serpent said. If you eat this, you'll know like God. So they were really wanting to be in something. They were designed to be in God, but they... That they, they went after being in, in the know. And as a result, the Bible tells us we're all longing for life, and yet our flesh, these natural desires that we're born with, is, is allergic to God. So we're on the hunt for alternative sources of life. And so that leads me to problem solving. How do we problem solve? Well, 
just a series of questions here, again, to kind of get you thinking, where or how can I find life? What's life-giving for you? What alternate sources of life do we go after? All the while knowing that what John says is true. If you look back to the call to worship from John 1, 1 to 5, and if you have a pen or a highlighter or a pencil or something, I would encourage you to highlight or, uh, or underline these four words. Uh, they're in the one, two, three, uh, excuse me, third into the fourth line there. In him was life. In him was life. But you and I go after other things. In what is life for you? Location matters. Where you live, who you live in, what you live in reveals your life source. You know, for example, we ask each other, so what line of work are you in? Uh, someone might say, well, I'm in sales, I'm in insurance, I'm in the military. What are you into? It's a way we get to know each other sometimes. And I might say, I'm really into working out. I'm really into Orlando City soccer, a, a waste of time at the moment. For those of you that follow Orlando City soccer, the rest of you are like, I didn't, I didn't even know what he's talking about. You know, there was something called Orlando City soccer. Um, we're all into, often, sports, hobbies for students. It might be something like, I really want to get into Florida State, into Clemson, into Yale. So it might be diet, exercise, it might be work habits, it might be a certain friend group, it might be a neighborhood. C.S. Lewis called it the inner ring. You want to get inside that something. And here's the way you know. You know that something has become an alternate source of life for you when you'll do anything to get in and stay in. And then you'll find yourself ensuring people you don't like don't get in. Uh, you, you see this in the recent, uh, it's a uh, famous news story of these celebrities who apparently, allegedly, were paying to get their kids into these elite schools, right? For sports, if your team loses, you actually get depressed. Or if your team wins, you're on cloud nine. For work, I can be so to use sales, I can be so in to sales that I'll cut corners, I'll lie to potential clients to get them to work with me, I'll undercut my fellow reps, I'll work 80 hours a week to make as much money as I can, all because what? I live in sales. Are you tracking with me? Does this make sense? A few, few nodded heads, a few blank stares. So we'll, we'll try to get the blank stares to nodding as we go through here. Let me use my example. Maybe this will help. Uh, I wanted to be able to say, from the time I entered seminary, what are you in? What line of work are you in? I wanted to be able to say, I'm in missions. I'm in missions. Uh, and so I studied, got my seminary degree, all the while, and I'm not kidding, judging the fellow students in my classes who would say things like, I'm just going to go pastor a church, Pfft, waste the time. Uh, I, I want to go work in this nonprofit or do this or do that. Pfft, waste of time. What do you want to do, Jonathan? I'm in. I'm going to be in missions. Uh, and so we raised money and we went. And we were in missions until we weren't anymore. Uh, less than a year later. And then we lived in my in-law's house. Mm-hmm. Talk about a failure. 
lived in my in-law's house and uh, was unemployed. You can see where I'm going with this. But what happened was it became such a source of life for me. I wanted to be in that line of work, in ministry, in missions. I didn't care if I was in Jesus. In fact, Jesus was just kind of a byproduct. I was more interested in finding life in serving him than finding life in him. That was my problem. And the Lord in his grace destroyed that and forced me to see, wow, what I really wanted to be in was not him. It was something else. And the lesson is this, friends, living in anything other than Jesus will kill you. And I'm so grateful that he saw fit to rescue me. It was an ugly rescue. It took me a while to realize it. But he says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Everyone who believes and, excuse me, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So how is he what we really need? Well, again, if you're here and you're not a Christian or you're new to Christianity in the Bible, I hope this connects some dots because uh, I want to look back at a couple of hymns, famous hymns. We sing these hymns every year and it's easy Familiarity might breed contempt or at least uh, apathy. We sing these words and hark the herald angels sing. Jesus, we just sang them. Jesus was what? Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Born that man no more may die. So he was born and died so you and I could live. Another hymn, Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. For what reason? To save us all from Satan's power. So in order to save his people from their sins, Jesus had to die as sin. That satisfied the penalty for sin. His death restores our relationship with God. His death brings us life. But three days later, what happened? He was raised. And at the resurrection, the power of death was broken. Death is the ultimate illustration of sin's power. Go back to page 3 again. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve got a death sentence, both spiritually and physically, because they rebelled against God. They wanted to find life in knowing, not in God. They wanted life, but they got death instead. And that sentence hangs over the human race, and it needed to be broken. And so listen... Our enemy is defeated and our life is safe because God has granted salvation through the triumph of Jesus Christ. And even as we continue in the wilderness of this life, even as you wake up on days like this and you just go, oh, can we just have some sun? And we live in the sunshine state. That's how, that, that's how quick we are to forget what the sun looks like. That's how prone we are to get down with the environment that we're in. But it is hard, no doubt about it. And even as we continue, we can be assured. Without Christmas, there's no salvation, there's no power, there's no authority. Without Christmas, we still stand accused day and night by the accuser himself. Without Christmas, we're stuck in the winter of our own discontent. There's a reason why it's not the summer of our own discontent. It's the winter of our own discontent. O come thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory over the what? Grave. Rejoice, 
Rejoice, Emmanuel has come to thee, O Israel. Jesus was the rescuer. His mission was one of rescue. See, he came to prove once and for all that the terrible lie the serpent had duped humanity into believing was, in fact, false. God does love us. He's not holding out on us. Look at how generous he is. He sends Jesus, the rescuer, to rescue us by willingly offering himself up. He wasn't rescued from his father's wrath for sin so that we could be. And he willingly did that. And he was raised on the third day to break the power of death over us. See, what we often fail to focus on is, is that according to the Bible, and listen, this is, this is strange to wrap your head around. I don't fully understand it. But we have to wrestle with it. We have to work to make it real to our hearts because the scriptures tell us not only are we united to Jesus in his death, we are united to him in his resurrection. And in the resurrection... The father personally vindicates his son. It's almost as if you see the son do this beautiful work his entire life where he obeys, 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 submits, submits. What a beautiful life, what a beautiful life, what a beautiful life. And then he's up on the cross and he's killed. And you're going, what? What's going on with that? And it's almost as if the father, he's just, he's kind of sitting there. And he, he receives his son's sacrifice. He pours all of his cup of wrath out on Jesus, who drinks it down to the dregs. And then he waits. And he waits. And on the third day, he says to the entire universe, that's my boy. Well done, son. Wake up. He personally vindicates Jesus in the resurrection. And so here, here's the best part. If your faith is in Jesus, you're personally vindicated because of his resurrection. Not because, of course, anything you do, but because in Jesus you're united to him in a death like his. You'll be, you'll be united to him in a resurrection like his. And so you're personally vindicated. Look carefully at John eleven twenty five. 25. Okay. Uh, do we have the... Sorry. Yeah, we do have the verses marked, so just find 25 there in your worship folder if you're following along in uh, the, uh, the scriptures there. Uh, look carefully at this verse. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And watch, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. But that and messes you up. Everyone who lives in me, Everyone who believes in me shall never die. And so, remember, everyone is living in something. Jesus says, if you're living in him, you'll never die. Believing in him, yes. Believing he was and is who he said, born a baby in Bethlehem, lived a life of perfect obedience to God the Father, died a condemned rebel, raised in newness of life on the third day. But not only believing, remember, what does John say? John 1 Four, in him was life. With him is life. Because of him is life. Yes, all of that is true. But just focus on that one word. In him is life. Living in him means death is done away with. 
But what about death is done away with? Well, it's power, it's sting, it's fear-mongering, gone. Now, easier said than done, right? But he promises, and that's what we've been looking at all Advent, when he says these things like, I am the bread of life, I am the good shepherd, I am the light of the world, I am the resurrection and the life. He means it. And he says, come to me, and these things will become true of you too. Live in me, and you'll experience these things. Now, what is it going to ultimately be like when Jesus comes again? Because some of you are saying, well, wait a minute. Uh, living in him means death is done away with. Well, no, it's not. The, hunter, the, the mortality rate in this room is 100%. We're all going to die. But are we all going to die? If you're in Christ, you just close your eyes and go to sleep. And then the Bible says he's going to wake you up. And when he wakes you up, it's just going to be, it's going to be the same thing as when he woke Jesus up on Easter morning. Only now, when you wake up, uh, it's going to be Jesus it's going to be all the saints who've gone before you. And it's going to be in a new world where, go back to the assurance of pardon, and it bears repeating, a new heavens and earth, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw this city coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride. I heard a loud voice saying, behold, the dwelling place of, with, of God is with man. Well, that's true now to a degree, but in Revelation 21, it's fully. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. And when he says death shall be no more, he means death shall be no more. Here's the thing, though. Resurrection life, and this is what I want to finish by trying to convince you of, resurrection life can be experienced now. Our tradition has not done a good job of talking about this um, because there's some things that we're rightly afraid of, uh, abusing and, and, and just getting kind of crazy with. However, because the new creation has begun, because death is working backward, the sad is coming untrue, we get bits and pieces of this promise coming to us now. Some of what Isaiah envisioned has come to pass and is coming to pass, but hasn't fully come to pass yet, of course. We've got to live in that tension. Paul Miller calls the experience of these bits and pieces viewing life through a resurrection lens. Because if you don't view or, excuse me, if we don't view our circumstances through this lens, even low-level persistent evil, like having to go to work every day and deal with an arrogant boss or living with a critical spouse or friend, it can just wear you down, right? Well, I thought that would get some rights, but, I mean, maybe you guys live above all of that. That's great. It wears me down. Paul Miller says, quote, A resurrection lens frees us from evil's ability to cling to our souls, Watching for real-time resurrections destroys the narrative web of evil in our lives. And so I want to end with a couple of real ways that lens can help change our view. I found these immensely helpful and convicting this week, so I hope you do too. We're going to use the Apostle Paul as an example. 
Okay, first, it can cure grumbling and crankiness. That was a big, con- uh, I was on edge the day I was working on this, really on edge. And some of you that know me, yes, I was on edge in the car, but I was on edge all over the place. Just ask my wife from that day. But life in the resurrection, life in Jesus himself keeps you on the lookout for risings, living watchful, living expectantly. Uh, John Calvin said this, the fact that afflictions always have a happy end is a consolation that much mitigates their bitterness. Of course, he's talking about for the Christian. Uh, We had a a, a lady pass away a couple of weeks ago now. She attended our church for uh, a few years uh, and the first time I met her, I thought, wow, she's grumpy. And uh, as I built a, a relationship, friendship with her, uh, reached the point where one time I said, you know, you're kind of grumpy. And she probably said, well, yeah, you know, you are too. <laughs> okay, fair enough. But then she got cancer. Uh, and she Then she went through a Praying Life seminar, and she read the book, A Praying Life, and she began to attend the Person of Jesus study, and she changed. And I got to visit her a couple of days before she died, and what I experienced was a person who said, I'm ready to go, and I'm ready to see. I'm tired of this tired body. I'm ready for a new one. Her, her grumbling and her cranks were gone. See, staying alert for resurrection keeps the victim and self-pity narratives from gaining steam in our hearts. The Apostle Paul actually said these words, do all things without grumbling. What? <laughs> he actually envisions a life devoid of the grumps. Can you imagine that? If I'm in Jesus, if I'm living in him, then self is dying slowly, 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 I am decreasing, he is increasing. Number two, it can protect us from cynicism. No, Christians are not blindly optimistic, but neither are we perennially pessimistic. Again, look at Paul. The same guy who said, I die daily, overflows with joy because the Spirit makes resurrection a continual present reality. We die daily, but we also rise daily. And through the Spirit, we can be realists, not optimists, blind optimists, or perennially pessimistic. We can live realistically, living victorious lives that can look any enemy in the face. Barb was looking pancreatic cancer right in the face. And it, it didn't phase her. She was ready. It can be cancer, slander, or depression. But here's the truth. Jesus' past resurrection means we experience present real-time resurrections as we wait for the future finale where all creation will be resurrected. Cynicism can't help but die in the face of that. I needed to hear that this week. I hope you do too. Talk about a countercultural trait. Christians should not be cynical. Our culture sure is. But man, what a way to distinguish ourselves. Number three, it, it can help us live with healthy emotions. The Apostle Paul, who famously said, rejoice when? Always, right? He didn't follow his own advice. You read Paul's letters, he experienced anxiety, fear, distress, sadness. See, living in Jesus doesn't mean you become emotionless. 
Nor does it mean you live exalting emotions either. If we aim to love each other as God in Christ has loved us, we'll experience plenty of disappointments. It's difficult to pretend like those aren't challenging. In fact, we didn't include it today, but in John chapter 11, it has the most famous incident of Jesus' emotional life. Because what what happens when he goes to the tomb and he sees the Jews uh, mourning Lazarus' death? What does he do? He, He cries. He cries. Even when he knew resurrection was right around the corner. What is that? That's a true human. Lastly, our vision for life can be transformed. Living through a resurrection lens, in Philippians, for example, written from prison, Paul says that to live is what? Christ. To die is gain. But Paul lives in Jesus, in his death and resurrection, and it shapes how he views the chains that are cutting into his wrists and ankles. He doesn't think of himself as in chains. He thinks of himself as in Christ. He looks at his dying, that is the chains, his imprisonment, through the lens of resurrection. Because he says, the Roman guards are hearing the gospel. So while I'm in chains, the gospel's going forth. Dying no longer has the last word. Friends, as Christmas approaches, I would encourage you, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. We sing the hopes and fears of all the years are met in you, Jesus, uh, tonight, that night in Bethlehem. So where are you fearful? Where are you struggling with hope? Where are you living? What are you into? Jesus says, whoever lives in me, whoever believes in me, shall never die. Do you believe this? So I would close with these lines uh, from Fleming Rutledge. She says, Advent faces into death and looks beyond it to the coming judgment of God upon all that deceives, twists, undermines, pollutes, contaminates, and kills his beloved creation. There can be no community of the resurrection without the conquest of death and the consummation of the kingdom of God. In those assurances lies the hope of the world. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, you are our only hope. In you we have life and life abundant. You tell us that you are the resurrection and the life. And in you is what we, at the end of the day, in you is what all of our hopes and fears and dreams need long for whether we want to admit it or not. And so as we come to this table uh, that is ours to not just remember but to experience uh, your great love for us, would you capture our hearts that we might find all the other things we're searching for and sourcing our life in rubbish that we might source our life in you and in you alone. Come and do that work in us and among us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive these words as you go. Uh, may they, may you, you attach your soul to them because they're the confirmation, the promise that everything we've said uh, and, and heard about God in our time together is true.
And so as you go, he goes with you. So receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.